I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening to Captured in Celluloid. This week, we are here to start what will be a three-episode series over the next kind of six weeks, two months or so, on the films, the entire filmography pretty much, of Terrence Malick. This is kind of, this is Andrew giving me, you know, the chance to go off on one of my favorite directors, someone I really care a lot about, and also giving Andrew the chance to learn some more about a director he's heard a lot about, but maybe hasn't seen a lot of his movies. So first, Andrew, how are you? And then secondly, you're, you've been baptized in the waters of Malik now. How does it feel? I'm doing very well. Um, life has taken some twists in terms of ter- uh, in terms of employment, but it's given me the freedom to embrace film again. And being baptized in the waters of Malik has been uh, a very interesting experience, and not quite what I expected. A lot of what I expected, and then s- some of what I didn't expect, because I think um, I think I had a misconception about the entire Terrence Malick filmography that may have been shaped by critical conversation around his more recent films. Do you think that's fair that that, that may be in some of our discussions about uh, like discussions I've had with my brother about Malick as it related to like Nomad Land and some of Chloe Zhao's films that maybe my mind was shaped in a way that it shouldn't have been. Yeah. I Nomad Land is just not really very, Malikian to me. I'll but, agree. But that has been that has been something that has been thrown out there as a point, and she does frequently get comparisons to Malik. And I guess it's just because she likes to train the camera on nature is maybe maybe part of it. But yeah, there is there is a weird thing I think where there is a reputation that Malik has as a filmmaker based on his insanely productive past decade, which is productive for any filmmaker and for Malik and the standards he'd set before is just incredible. It's really, nobody could see it coming that Terrence Malik was going to be a director who, you know, a movie a year, a movie every two years. This was someone who very famously took a 20-year hiatus. Um, maybe not entirely of his own choice, but between two of the films we'll talk about later. So there is a reputation I've come with that. He's changed as a filmmaker. He has new interests, new ideas, and a more kind of radical visual style, I think, now than maybe he even had then. But Starting at the beginning is always the best thing to do with Malik. And that's what, that's what we're doing here. We're talking about Badlands, Days of Heaven, and the Tin Red Line in this episode. And I think in doing that, you get to see, well, well, Malik was always radical. He was radical in a way that kind of reshaped how Hollywood movies could be and some of the ideas that could work their way into mainstream American cinema. But there is also something more firm to you know grip and hold on to in these three films certainly the first two and by the time you get to the tin red line you can see just the beginnings of something different emerging which certainly has come to typify his later work more the i guess distilled version of 
what I was expecting out of Mount going into this project was someone obviously that's a very visual filmmaker, someone that embraces nature and is very meticulous with that sort of thing. I think some of the negative aspects that I was expecting is someone that's uh, less interested in dialogue, plot, and character. And while that's true to an extent, especially when it comes to dialogue, I don't think that's fair at all uh, when it comes to plot and character development, because I think all of the, the, the films that we're going to talk about here have aspects of that, but he's just such a visual storyteller that that's what stands out and the, the setting and the scenes and how the natural world reflects back onto what the characters are doing and going through, especially in the thin red line, I think is really what stands out about his filmmaking. And so while I was coming into it, looking at it maybe through, ooh, I'm, it's, this isn't going to be necessarily a filmmaker for me because of how much I locked, like the walk and talk type of nonsensical dialogue, nothing happens movies. Uh, but I, the way he carries you through a story, even limiting dialogue, he, you know, one thing that I wasn't expecting that I maybe had forgotten and something that I don't often like in films, but really found to enjoy <laughs> across his three films is the focus on narration it's something that i think um can come across as as lazy and expositiony but i think in badlands days of heaven and then really in the thin red line is where it stood out the most to me and where i thought it really worked because we're just getting this like existential meditations from various characters on what it means to exist and i think it really ties together with the visuals to to make you feel everything that's going on even if it's you know not very chatty from character to character except when they're mapping out the different ways they're going to take the hill and try not to die essentially but yeah so overall at the end of this process and it'll obviously change as we get into some of the work that maybe got a little more radical and didn't work as well but i think the thing that stands out to me about malik is he is just such a precise filmmaker and he he knows exactly what he wants to do uh in every project and it might just take him a while to get there and he might <laughs> go in a lot of different directions and you know piss off the entire cast and crew uh with his demands but especially with badlands days days of heaven we talk a lot about how oh this first time filmmaker came out with this great film in their first movie but i think for malik to come out of the gates with badlands and make something so specific and so tailored to what the outcome that he wanted and to have it be an absolute masterpiece and incredibly mainstream and watchable, which is something that um, maybe I had also those preconceived notions with Malik. But I mean, three films into this project, and I, I'm just kind of blown away by him as a filmmaker and kind of regret taking as long a time as I did to get to these films. Just taking because of maybe your brother Jordan's word for it. This is you are. Hi, Jordan. Hope you listen. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with the documentary, Jordan. Yeah, take, taking his word for it and just, I mean, it goes to show you with any filmmaker, you know, put eyes on it and see for yourself. Uh, look, I think Malik is one of the the great examples of a filmmaker where personal taste comes into it. And for me, this is exactly my taste. I mean, I people who listen to the podcast, um, certainly you, you will know this of I like my filmmakers to make films to be incredibly visual to make their 
make their art using the tools that you know sound and vision give them that's what makes a filmmaker as opposed to a playwright there is this idea that you know some of malik's writing is not necessarily as good as many of his peers and i would very strongly oppose that because he writes in a different way his dialogue is often really great and pinpoint and you see that in his early movies he's just not as interested in it as he is in telling his story true images which is really the, you know the whole purpose of the medium i mean visual storytelling has evolved and it has merged and is certainly very closely tied to literature and to the stage and their fundamental elements of what makes it work but i would still personally contest that the best movies come from someone being able to understand okay i've got something on a page here but how should it be on a screen what is the impact it should convey for an audience when it's translated into sound and picture and malik is just one of the great examples of that he's not a bombastic filmmaker which i think he's not bombastic in any way uh, personality wise We'll get into a lot of the, I guess, the myth and the mystique surrounding Malik, but he is known to be an incredibly shy and quiet individual, very thoughtful. He is quite literally a poet and a philosopher, and that sets him apart in terms of, you know, who he is in the wider kind of history of mainstream American filmmaking. There isn't really another filmmaker who's worked in hollywood and has had big hollywood actors and has launched important hollywood careers and worked with some of the greatest craftspeople that have kind of gone through the american film industry particularly in the last 50 years there isn't someone else with malik's kind of vision his viewpoint and possibly with his intellect as well he is not your average filmmaker and when we start with these films and you talk with something like badlands Badlands is a great example of something that it comes at the start of the new Hollywood, the American new wave, of, as it's known, that brought, you know, filmmakers like Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola. It, it brought them to Brian De Palma, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg. You know, if you want to go through that whole generation, Paul Schrader. These are the people that generally come to mind. Malik is really a part of that, and he's also completely apart from it. You know, he's he's right at the forefront in kind of revolutionizing what an American movie could be and what an American audience sees a movie as being. And at the same time, he he's staying true enough to the language of what traditional Hollywood movies had been. And in something like Badlands, you can see and you can feel the influence of something like you you get the classical Hollywood feel throughout it, but the French New Wave is also there. And notably, I mean, he kind of was a mentee, uh, worked alongside Early coming out of AFI with the legendary director Arthur Penn, who most famous for directing Bonnie and Clyde. And Badlands is narratively, thematically... Uh, visually for some stretches very very similar to bonnie and clyde but you can see the areas where malik goes i like that i like how we can rapidly and radically kind of break away from just what films are supposed to be 
But here's how I would also add to that. You get something more contemplative, you get something a little bit more lyrical, and it all comes together to give one of the most interesting portraits of America and Americana ever put on screen. And that's one of the reasons he's so important, because he helped to redefine the language of American movies. And you can see, particularly his early films, you can see in what came after. Now, he's currently doing something else, which is kind of pushing the boundaries further. It's not going to be to everyone's taste. It's certainly not mainstream. But Malik is one of the key people who laid the groundwork, and yet he doesn't factor into that conversation because his movies are so different. And also because, you know, if you wanted to make a movie a documentary about the history of American cinema from the 70s onwards, you can't just call up Terrence Malick and say, do you want to do an interview? Because Malick hasn't done an interview in over 40 years. He's a recluse. Uh, he has never been someone who's really put himself out there and spoke. He's become an increasingly mythical figure because of that. There's a great article in Texas Monthly from about five or six years ago, and I know I shared it with you when uh, we came to do this, that I recommend everyone reading. It's mostly just about Malik and his life around Austin, Texas, but it has all this great biographical detail in there too. And I mean, the hook for that article is, you know, the internet or the film corner of the internet was set ablaze because video emerged of this, you know, middle-aged to slightly elderly man dancing with his wife um, at a concert in Austin. And it's because it's Terrence Malick and you don't see him on camera very often. He is in Badlands. He has a cameo in Badlands. And other than that, it's not like you've got a treasure trove of interviews and of, you know, even kind of um, supplementary making of footage to be like, how does Malik work and what is he thinking? So you get his story as in the story from behind the camera told by his collaborators. And the legend grows with that. And it grows with, you know, the idea of this really shy, quiet, thoughtful man whose approach to filmmaking is just so different to anything most of his cast and crew are used to that he just creates chaos wherever he goes. You don't often see it on the screen with the kind of movies he makes, but Malik, as you've already alluded to, frequently his movies have resulted certainly early in his career in mutinies among the crew who are like, like, why are we not doing what we're supposed to be doing? Instead, we're like chasing, I don't know, this wild goose that's running over here or, completely setting up the shot in a different setting up a different shot in a different place at this time just because the light looks better right there at this particular moment you know he is very much his own soul he is not a traditional filmmaker uh if to give some background to him i mean i i'm pretty sure his mother was from chicago his father was iranian he spent most of his formative years growing up in texas at a boarding school i think his family lived in oklahoma at the time um, from there, he went to Harvard, where he studied philosophy. He was a Rhodes Scholar at Magdalen College, Oxford, after that, where he went to do his master's in philosophy. He had a dispute with a supervisor, so left without his degree, didn't finish that. Then he became a magazine journalist in places like Haiti and Bolivia, um, where he wrote for The New Yorker and he wrote for Life. Um, he then came back and taught for a year, I believe it was, at MIT, where he was teaching philosophy. He taught 
you know, philosophy's not for me. He went on to translate one of the major works of the German philosopher Martin Heidegger. And then, and only at that point, did Malik decide, oh, what about movies? And he went to the AFI and he started to work in screenwriting. And one of the things famously that is noted, one of the early drafts is attributed to Malik. It's not something that he gets any credit on screen for, but he was one of the writers to go through a very early draft of his amazingly Dirty Harry. Um, Terence Malik was one of the people who helped shape Dirty Harry. And from that, he gets to Badlands. But all of that just gives you a flavor of the kind of the legend that grows around them because he he really has lived the you know most interesting man in the world kind of lifestyle, and yet we don't have like visual or aural evidence for that. He's not telling us about it all the time, and that's all the more interesting now in our modern age where everything is documented in one form or another you've got this great artist and I don't know, I think you felt this and you mentioned it to me privately, like you watched the first two films and you're like, what the hell did he do for 20 years? You know, how, how do you make Badlands and Days of Heaven in five years and then 20 years go by before the Tin Red Line comes along? Like to begin with, that's just a fascinating jumping off point. And I, I think part of the thing for me with Malik is when I first got into his movies, it would have been around the time... I think a little bit before Tree of Life came out. So it was still at the point where he'd made The New World and that was his the only film he'd made after The Tin Red Line. So he was still, you know, oh, well, you might get on average one masterpiece every 10 years from Terrence Malick. That was kind of, that was the deal on what you could expect. So the way his career has evolved and the narratives around them have evolved are fascinating where we can open this up with a conversation where from your point of view, you had an idea of Malik from what people talk about Malik and based on some of his more recent work that may not be entirely positive, but then you go back to his early work and they're just like unimpeachable classics. And they now seem kind of almost traditional Hollywood classics where at the time they were anything but that. Yeah, I think what's what's so interesting about that 20-year gap is that I think that life experience that you discuss and how he, I, I don't know, he hopped from place to place and figured out what he wanted to do and what he didn't want to do. And I think uh, that maybe life experience can kind of tie back to his his filmmaking process and just he's not and to add, sorry to add one thing on that because i think it's important for that point and it won't make either of us feel any better um he did all that and he was 30 years old by the time badlands was released <laughs> um that makes me think of uh something impressive. i watched last night that you'll get to um uh a little later in the week i assume adam and uh both of you and I are both staring 30 down the barrel. So yeah, that's, that's a tough look. But anyway, <laughs> um, it, I don't know that life experience just strikes me as something that has turned him to a filmmaker where he's going to make what he wants to make. And if it's not what he wants to make, he's just not going to make it. That's why you go under through this 20 year odyssey where he was trying to make what would eventually probably, turn into the tree of life and said it just didn't work out and then 20 years later you come out with the thin red line going back to badlands uh 
I think Badlands is the one that took me by the most surprise. Um, just because it's a movie that I had only heard of through you. And to me, as I was watching it, I got a similar sensation that I did as I was watching Blowout. And it felt like I was watching this like part of Hollywood history. And that this should be one of the movies that even the most mainstream like movie people talk about as the, one of the greatest films of all time. I think people like you do, but it's, it's just not a film that I see talked about the way people talk about the Godfather or Citizen Kane or things like that. So it's more maybe in the, the niche people that know what they're talking about film corners of the internet. But I was, I was just struck by like how watchable and entertaining a film it is. I mean, it's, it's a movie about uh, basically a Bonnie and Clyde type couple who go on a little bit of a killing spree and run from the law. What's there's nothing more American than that. That's uh, that's classic American cinema. And then you get an, two absolutely all time performances um, from Sissy Spacek and and Martin Sheen. I want to say Sissy Spacek really had a lane during that period. Uh, of the seventies or eighties or whatever it was with Carrie and with Badlands, just the most awkward teenage character ever. Uh, but Altman's uh, three women also, you know, belongs in that. And the thing, the thing with Sissy's basic was she's like mid twenties by the time all of those movies were made, but just physically she looked like not even a teenager as much as a child. So she was one of the people who everyone could reach for for those kind of roles, and yet she brought something kind of particularly interesting and unique to it. And what she brings into Badlands is particularly interesting because it's almost like a... I think her performance is darker than Martin Sheen's in a way because of how just, like, go-along she is with everything, and there's a coldness... In even the way I think she like grabs the hand or puts her hand on the back or whatever it is of one of the women as they're taking them out into the field or whatever and they put them in the little bunker. It's just she's kind of like, eh, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Kit's crazy, blah, blah, blah. And uh, that's just a fantastic performance. Uh, Martin Sheen looks like a perfect mashup of his two children's face in this role, which uh, was awesome. He's basically doing a James Dean uh, impersonation throughout the whole movie and it just works so well. So. My big takeaway here is, uh, or the point that I'm trying to make is, Adam, do you think the, I guess, because Badlands bombed at the at the box office, right? I mean, it wasn't the biggest budget. It was largely funded by Malik himself. But yeah, it wasn't a commercial success. So if you get to the end of that process and you're like, I made what should be a classic American film, an incredibly mainstream film, and no one liked it. Okay, I'm just going to do what I want for the rest of my career. I don't, I don't think that's the case, because one, I don't think Malik cared then or has ever cared about commercial performance of his movies. That's really someone else's problem, <laughs> I think, it would be how he'd view it. I mean, from his perspective, I think the point you made about, you know, that long and winding journey he had to being a filmmaker those years from um when he finished high school through his various kind of college exploits and then his journalistic endeavors around the world that informs malik's films to me in a way that he's just not a filmmaker first you know it's not it's not 
the thing that comes to mind for him when he sits down think about what is this film he's more interested i would say in philosophy and so any movie he's going to make that's going to be at the forefront of his mind is he's going to tell the stories of the characters in a way that isn't quite you know the rote way that we may often see it and then he's going to I guess, apply that idea to how do I make this into something cinematic, which may be in part how his movies end up being so kind of striking in a visual and aural sense. Um, yeah, that's fair. And so to correct myself, you know, it's just, it makes a bunch of AFI lists and was listed as uh, mm-hmm. pre- preserved by the Library of Congress for being culturally, historically, it's, or aesthetically significant. So it's just that I'm too well, mainstream. I, I think too. <laughs> well, I think your point is right. And you're not the most mainstream person by any stretch of the imagination. But it, I don't think it is at a point where it should be, where everyone knows better. And there could be other reasons for that, which is it's dark. You know, it's it's pitch, pitch black in spite of the fact that it has a kind of airy, breezy wistfulness throughout it. You know, you could watch it, half watch it, and think it was a completely different film about different stuff than it actually is, I think is is kind of part of the point. And maybe those who do watch it, it's it's a lot. But, I mean, to me, it's one of the, I don't know, I'd have to list them out, but it's like, it's one of my 10 favorite films ever made. I would say it's easily easily in the 20 greatest american movies ever made and and i still have a lot of work to do but and and watching this days of heaven and then in particular the thin red line so quickly after one another it's interesting to see the through land or through line through badlands to the thin red line even though they're very different films and thematically the the notion of we're all here and we all die i mean if you go through badlands there's frequent shots of of dead animals throughout the film and then uh i won't spoil what happens at the end but it's just a movie that's surrounded by death and it's interesting to me as well how through every film and starting here malik really did have that obsession with the natural world and how humans are a part of that but maybe they're the most or they're definitely the most corrupt corrupt aspect of it um this is obviously an important uh, film to you. Uh, the first time mm-hmm. I saw it, what what stood out to me obviously was the, the visual nature of his filmmaking, the relationship with nature, and just the how much I enjoyed the plot despite the dark darkness and uh, those themes. What is it for you that I guess the first time you watched it, how, however many years ago, that that kind of locked it in as one of your favorite films of all time and Rec, uh, made you realize that that, that Malik was going to be in the De Palma <laughs> school of filmmakers for you that are the people that make films for you that if when you become a filmmaker they're going to be heavily in, influenced in those films I mean Malik Malik for me precedes De Palma like De Palma I talk about a lot and that's really because he has been my kind of past two years that's the filmmaker that I've really kind of found in a way that maybe I didn't on watches of some of his work in the past or um, had missed some key movies that really kind of unlocked the panel for me. Malik was one of the filmmakers that just, I don't know, blew my hair back and made me go, okay, this is what movies can be. 
uh, look, we'll talk about it in the next episode in the Malik series where we talk about Tree of Life some more. That seeing Tree of Life in a movie theater was like that experience for me. I could give multiple movies that kind of changed my life or changed how I viewed movies. Most of them were after the facts. You know, I was watching Taxi Driver at home on a TV. I was watching Vertigo at home on a TV the first time that I saw both of those movies. Tree of Life, it was like, okay, I've watched some Terrence Malick movies. I really like them. New Terrence Malick out. I remember specifically the screen is now an IMAX screen. Um, it's the only IMAX screen in Ireland where I saw it. It wasn't then, but it was a big, big screen. So biggest screen you could see. You can imagine you go and see Tree of Life and look, we'll unpack all of that some more when we talk about it. But at that point, you're just like, this is something that I've never seen before. And possibly at quite an impressionable age that hit me. And I was like, okay, this is this is just something I didn't imagine film being. I haven't seen before. And not many people can do this that way. So immediately that kind of, I don't know, generates a cult of genius, cult of the artist sensation around Malik on my part. For Badlands, I mean, I think the first four four and a half minutes of badlands are one of the greatest openings of any film ever made and maybe the greatest opening of any american film ever made because it does so much and in such a gentle way that if you're not paying attention and maybe on a first viewing too it doesn't land in the same way as when you're going back and you're you're revisiting where everything is there so straight away we're kind of it opens um sissy spacek is on her bed she's petting her dog and the voiceover kicks in and malik is basically taking us through this idealized version of american suburbia you know white picket fences mown lawns and you're getting introduced to this you know vision of america vision of what america was is could be will be that still exists in one form or another to this day, you know, the modified version of it, the romanticized notion of, you know, what once was America um, without breaking out, you know, slogans that have been in the news plenty over the past five, six years. This is something, the idea of kind of American mythology is deeply ingrained in society in the US, in culture. And I don't think there's many kind of filmmakers who've captured it as well. It's funny. David Lynch is the filmmaker who's best known and most widely associated for kind of pulling back the curtain. You get all of this sense of, oh, yeah, look at the beauty of uh, the American suburbs and the idealized and perfect lives of the middle class. And then he peels that away and shows you just how weird and horrifying everything is beyond that. Malik was there. Malik was there early. And if Malik, you know, had decided to take his career a different way and continue on the strand of Badlands, I think you'd find a lot of that. So you get his opening sequence that, to me, for as kind of understated as it is, it just blew me away because you're getting um, Sissy Spacek in like her childhood bedroom looking incredibly innocent. And she's out on the lawn and she's twirling her baton. And this is intercut with kick Carruthers, Martin Sheen's character on his run um, as a garbage man and asking like uh, his co-worker how much I have to pay you to eat this dead dog and within the space of three to four minutes 
like we are literally seeing the darker side the seedy un- underbelly of america encroach on the vulnerability and the innocence that is there and move right into the heart of the suburbs and that's really what the first 20 30 minutes of of Badlands are we're seeing that come together and then you're you're getting to kind of look at this idea of corrupted innocence and sure it works on kind of a micro level where you look at this one character or you could expand it a little bit further and you could apply it to just youth in general i also think though it it does have something to say about america generally and how america has evolved and how culturally different notions have come to kind of dominate the american psyche like badlands i hadn't watched it for I don't know, it's probably been a few years, two or three years, maybe. It could be longer, but I can't imagine it being too much longer since I last watched it. I was struck on this viewing by just how like contemporary it is as a, as a script. As in, if you wrote this now, you could still set it, you know, as a period piece and make the movie it is. And there'd be so much writing about, you know, what it's actually saying about modern America in terms of you know, the character Kit Carruthers is basically seeking out fame and infamy and doesn't really care how he gets it. And we've seen a lot of movies um, do this in not quite so subtle or successful ways. Joker, for example. You know, there is there is something here that is really kind of deeply embedded into ideas that Hollywood continues to go back to the well for. And yet it's never been told with as much subtlety and grace and quietness as it is here. And I mean, just to go back to the opening, you get this, I think it is again, it's like three and a half, four minutes in, you get the the title where Badlands finally comes up on the screen. One just beautiful font, iconic title design, a great shot you get. As it comes up, Martin Sheen is just starting to approach kind of he's in the middle of the street approaching the house and you can see sissy spacek twirling her baton and just the staging of it the way the neighborhood looks is incredible um the score throughout badlands the music there's lots of carl orff compositions throughout that are just i don't know you've had you haven't watched it before but it, it feels like a lot of that is music that you've heard somewhere um like the music of badlands is kind of just has escaped the film but not in a way where speaking to your earlier point people are like oh yeah this is this is from badlands this is that carl orff track it did feel very familiar even during a first watch and i especially noticed it at the end um Mm -hmm. but yeah it's it definitely it's it's been somewhere out in the world and i couldn't figure out well where but it just felt so familiar but i i just think like you mentioned too making badlands as your first film i there are very few debut films that have ever come close to doing what this does and does from its very beginning. And there is just, I don't know, there's a delicate touch there too, in terms of there's so much going on, like that movie could be a train wreck, um, trying to take the kind of tone it does take with the subject matter that's actually there, but everything is judged perfectly. And I actually, I, I want to push back on something you said earlier, which you t- you talked about Malik being a precise filmmaker. I, I would argue Malik is maybe the most imprecise filmmaker. And that is part of it. He has no desire to be precise. His desire is to find something. 
he has a general idea. There will be a script. He'll know what he's worked well. There's a script at this point. There may not be a script when we get to the, the future episodes of this series. Um, but there is a script. He's working towards something. He has an idea. But he will let the moment take him. And he famously finds his movies in the edit. And there's a comfort in that, in knowing that, you know, you can find something real that can make the film into something other than just here's how we're going to do it. Which again is from how like Badlands was a nightmare in terms of the production. I don't know how much Malik really felt it or cared about it, but for the people working on it, they're like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? And why are we working this way? How will this work? But it's, it's just such a striking film. I was watching, um, some of the Criterion special features when I rewatched this a few days ago um, in advance this. And there's great kind of pretty extended interviews with Martin Sheen and Steve Spacek. And Martin Sheen talks at length about like getting this script and just being like, this is the best script I've ever read. And to this day, he says, it's still far and away the best script he's, he's ever read. It's the only thing that he's read it. And he's like, this is it. You know, this is my career. This is the work that will define me. I need to be in this. And at first he turned it down. He turned it down because he felt he was too old. He's like, we just, it can't work this way. They talk back and forth. I think the characters might've been aged up just slightly um, as a compromise and he did it. But Badlands is the the great example of where, you know, any conversation about, oh, Malik's dialogue in more recent movies, like Malik has moved away from dialogue. And that's a choice. It's not like he doesn't write good dialogue or his movies don't have that kind of really tight scripted structure. It's He's making a choice, an artistic choice. Uh, when he wants to write a movie and he wants to write dialogue and the voiceover, the voiceover, you mentioned the voiceover. Um, Malik and Billy Weber, who is the editor on Bad Lines, but also the editor on the vast majority of Malik's films, certainly the three we're talking about today, um, they pinpoint Francois Truffaut's The Wild Child as the film that for them opened up their eyes to this style of voiceover and informed, okay, that's what we want and that's what can add something to this. And a lot of my favorite movies, if not most of my favorite movies, include voiceover. And yet if you were to ask me, what do I think of voiceover? I would say something derogatory about it because it's really, really tough to get it right. And more often than not, a voiceover could ruin a pretty interesting and good film otherwise. But one of the things in Badlands, particularly as the movie progresses, Sissy SpaceX voiceover gets further and further removed from the events we're seeing on screen. And that feeds into the idea that you talked about earlier, where there's almost something a little disturbing and cold about her where there's this detach where, you know, she'll be talking about, you know, the vast landscape as they, as they drive through the country. Whereas a viewer, you're like, you're in the middle of a killing spree here. You know, you're a part of this. Uh, it may not be you doing it, but you're in the middle of it. I don't did, did I mention the origins? I don't think I did, which is, it is based um, loosely, but not entirely all that loosely on the, the killings of Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate which, as I know to you before we started, is also the the source of inspiration for Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. Nebraska is written from the point of view of Charles Starkweather. So that's, I know, an important piece of uh, 
of culture for you, Andrew. So now you've got two things inspired by the Starkweather Fugate killings. Yeah, I'm, I appreciated you wearing the uh, Springsteen shirt a few weeks ago. So, you know, anything else for you with this movie? Not too much. I wanted to go back to one thing you said about the dialogue. And I think um, I think where his dialogue or where his writing, I'll say, in this film is mm-hmm. most impressive is in the in basically everything Kit Carruthers says, because Martin Sheen can give a great performance. But what if what he's saying feels inauthentic to the character that we're getting to know, then it just doesn't work as well. But despite how dark and truly fame hungry and evil we can see him becoming or maybe always was because of where he found himself in life picking dead dogs off the street i think you still understand why holly is drawn to him a little bit and a lot of that comes down to there is this kind of dumb charm to the things that he says and i mean that goes into the end where he's kind of uh work in the room as he's handcuffed and about to be taken away it's like the the people that are harassing him are almost like uh, enamored with his bullshit. And I think that comes down to, to Terrence Malick's writing, working together with Martin Sheen's performance. So yeah. Uh, you know, that's all. That's also like, I think going back to that character is desperate for fame. Yeah. Desperate for people to know who he is. Like, I love that scene because that shows just how easily I guess the American public, I, I feel uncomfortable, not American, I keep saying America, but these movies are about America. Uh, Malick cinema, and particularly these three, are entirely about America. Like, he's he's showing how much the audience just loves to soak this stuff up too, which is true to this day. Look at how well true crime stuff does. Look at something like, um, I, I always think about when I watch this. Have you seen Natural Born Killers, the Oliver Stone movie? I have not. Tarantino script? I do know of it. Um, yeah, it, It's an infamous movie. A lot of people know of it. That is a lot. That is a very different kind of uh, version of, you know, young couple on the run getting up to all sorts of things that they really should not be getting up to. But that's the story that is you know it carries on it gets reinvented through the ages and the fascination grows for it i think it's something like queen and slim that i saw like whatever 18 months ago like this is this is a a format that hollywood continues to go to and in part that's because i think the audience reacts just like that group of soldiers reacts to to actually catching kick crudders which is yeah it tells your story charm us um you're not like us so let us just get a look inside that which is really horrifying like that is kind of deeply unsettling and more unsettling than if you did this movie and there was lots of really graphic violence and murder like that's again that's the kind of filmmaking choice that is really doing something you know there's something really powerful in the decision in in what's on screen and what he's chosen to do, but also in the way that he's moved away from, that he's avoided entirely. And I, I think that's great. Just to mention, um, going to come up again, particularly in Days of Heaven, Jack Fisk's production design. I mentioned Lynch and Lynch's reputation as kind of, um, I guess, the master of kind of distorted American suburbia. I don't think it's a coincidence at all that one of his most frequent collaborators 
has been Jack Fisk over the years. Jack Fisk's work on this movie is pretty spectacular. Of course, he did. He's married Sissy Spacek. They met and fell in love during this film. And Sissy Spacek tells it that she'd never seen production design like it. And it actually ended up playing a pretty crucial role in their courtship at that point, because normally you'd go on a set and okay you're in her bedroom and the bedroom is dressed incredibly it looks great but you'd sit down and you'd open a drawer and there'd be nothing in there where the detail that fist goes to is if you open that drawer you're going to find like trinkets and different things in there that are going to speak to they're going to inform the character and she's referenced in their case he used to leave things kind of specifically for her as their own off-screen um relationship was burgeoning too but like the early stuff from how the house looks, from how the street looks, all of that is like great, great um, examples of some of Jack Fisk's phenomenal early work. Um, and Fisk, of course, you know, just speaking to things I like, did also work on Carrie. He was production designer on Carrie, production designer on Phantom of the Paradise. So um, plenty of experience working alongside Brian De Palma as well. Uh the other thing I just some of my favorite scenes of any movies ever. I think the scene you mentioned to me, which is one of my favorites, which is with um the dancing to love is strange. Was that am I remembering that right that you mentioned that? Correct, my favorite scene in the movie. Just incredible. Again, like that's where you just let's take the viewer to where this young couple are and let's kind of separate them from what they're doing what's going on and what's to come and put this in the middle of the movie and really drop you in the character's world this kind of surreal space that is at the same time easier to understand when you consider two young people in that place just a great scene a great song looks great visually that whole extended, we'll say 10, 12 minutes, whatever it might be, of them kind of building the treehouse. Again, Jack Fisk's production design, he he built that in a day, that really elaborate treehouse, which I found amazingly impressive. It's got like tree stories and like whole runways through everything around that and their kind of life there to being discovered there is just peerless filmmaking for me. And um, the music throughout that, that point, that kind of chunk of the movie um the voiceover it's some of the very best of badlands is condensed into that spell all right we'll keep moving so badlands came out in 1973 five years later which was a very speedy turnaround considering and um, what was to come malik made days of heaven days of heaven is well i'll ask you do you is days of heaven what you you watched these chronologically, right? For your viewing for this? I did. So you finished Badlands and you're like, that's an incredible debut. What did you expect next? Um, I was expected to be let down. And I don't want to say that I was let down. I'll just say this film didn't resonate as much with me overall. But I still acknowledge its greatness. It might be the mm-hmm. best looking film I've ever seen. Uh, I mean, hashtag magic hour, Adam. I mean, like the the meticulous steps that they went through to to capture the fields of whatever the fuck they were farming uh, 
shot in Alberta in very kind of northern spot of Canada just to extend magic hour a little bit longer. There's just this these just beautiful shots of this orange sky set against the field frequently throughout the film and it's just amazing as they're finishing their day harvesting and harvesting into the night and that sort of thing. So it's the best looking film. Uh it's definitely of that era, maybe of all time. I don't know, you know, these these lists are all subjective. Uh I know the story's been criticized uh, in the past, I don't have a problem with the story. I think, you know, family on the run from Chicago, there's a little secret about them and they're trying to figure out how to make a new life for themselves. I, th- I thought that was pretty interesting. I think this mm-hmm. movie is let down by the acting. I'm, I'm going to be real honest with you. Richard Gere's not doing a lot for me. Uh, mm. I, I, yeah, I just think it's a, it's a fine performance, but at, with the levels that Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek were bringing in, it's Beck not the lands, same. Yeah, I think yeah, it's not the same. That comparison is, and that's obviously just the nature of doing this type of exercise, comparing them against one another in such a tight time frame, maybe a, a little bit unfair. But I, I, I do think overall, it's, I mean, the difficult second album. It's not that. It's still a historically great film, especially because of the visuals. The gear point is interesting because I mean this is this is at the really kind of short lived peak and zenith of Gear the actor before he became Gear the star and I guess the baggage that came with that was very different. Like Days of Heaven was seventy eight, American Gigolo I think was nineteen eighty, and I think the year after that he did an Officer and a Gentleman, and that kind of changes his career for a completely different kind of. That's how he ends up in pretty woman like a decade later um i think sam shepherd is amazing and he is the performance that i think about from this movie all the time and that sticks with me like way after watching it, it i that's a pretty spectacular performance i'm not crazy about the performance sorry i think brooke adams is really good um linda mans is it's not my favorite and the voiceover is not my favorite although it is essential to the movie there's something about it that it just it's not my favorite i'm not saying it's not it doesn't work for the the purpose of the movie itself but this is a film that i do really like but i i definitely admire it and appreciate it more than i like it all the same there's just so many pieces of i mean it's it's really the visuals more than anything this is in the discussion and this is not me kind of just really overstepping a mark or being unbelievably hyperbolic about it it's like this is one of the the most well shot films ever made ever made this is right up there with the very best the cinematography has ever ever been so you've got this kind of fascinating mix of collaborators okay so you've got malik as the director and you've got malik's vision overseeing it all you've got the legendary spanish cinematographer nestor almandros almandros shoots about 50 to 60 percent of this movie because he and malik were very much on the same page which i don't think went for the rest of the crew they were very diligent, some might say slow, in shooting this movie. They ran way over time, and Nestor Almandros already had 
agreed to shoot Francois Truffaut's next movie. So he had to leave with about 40% of the movie still uncompleted because they had run that far over schedule um, with Malik and Almendros basically chasing the sun. <laughs> it's essentially what happened. Uh, that's not ideal. A lot of movies would just collapse with a cinematographer change like that midway through them. Luckily, in this case, Haskell Wexler, another legendary cinematographer, comes in, um, has a very healthy dialogue with Almendros, agrees, okay, I know how to basically just work within continuity of the vision that had already been established to make this whole thing work together. So Haskell Wexler finishes the film. Then you've also got, like, um, I, the story goes, Almendros died of... I can't remember exactly. He died of some AIDS-related um, condition a while after this, but his health had started to deteriorate around the time of the shooting of Days of Heaven. I believe he was going blind. So he used to get production stills and Polaroids taken of shots he'd map out so he could see them up close rather than through a viewfinder to actually get a sense of what the shot was going to be. But one of the other things that happened was he, in his European uh, work in particular, a lot of the stuff with Truffaut, he would also be the camera operator. But for a combination of reasons, one being that his eyesight was failing, and two being union rules in North America wouldn't allow him to be both cinematographer and camera operator, he had camera operators working with him. So the camera operator for some, one of them was John Bailey, who John Bailey himself went on to be a great cinematographer, um, shot some of some of Paul Schrader's best films in particular, Mishima, which is maybe you know take maybe out. it's Schrader's best looking film and one of his absolute masterpieces, shot by John Bailey. I don't know if it's the name John Bailey familiar to too. Do you know what John Bailey does now? Um, does he run the Barnum and Bailey Circus? He does run something. Um, John Bailey is president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. So head of the Academy now, John Bailey. So really, I mean, two as kind of co-cinematographers, although coming in separately, and then one as a camera operator at an early point in his career before he went on to kind of be a cinematographer in his own right and all the work. You've got three great cinematographers working on this movie. And you've got Malik, who just doesn't care about anything else other than getting beautiful shots of nature to have as the backdrop for this film and to really set as, you know, I guess set just the wider context of the movie and the wider context of his career, which is, you know, the chaos of human life and existence set against the almighty force of nature. And you often get these... Like the the plot for Days of Heaven is quite melodramatic, and it's all very kind of petty squabbles, and that's what Malik likes. Malik likes okay, let's get that and let's put that against nature, and you get one of the most incredibly photographed fire scenes, for example, ever ever in this movie. Um, uh, maybe you know neck and neck with the fire scene in Badlands which didn't mention, but is incredible and resulted, I think, in some crew members getting burned maybe pretty badly. Um, Gotta break uh, a few eggs at them. <laughs> the story goes, this was in the, one of the Criterion Extras as well, there was an assistant who 
wasn't quite aware of the technique they were using. They were using some kind of, I think it was a liquid cement or something because of the way the flame would catch it and it would gradually burn through. And it's highly, highly flammable to the point where, you know, you strike the match and it's been set down, the room is up in flames. So some assistant decided, oh, you know, I'll just get ready so we're ready and I'll strike this match. And the whole thing went up in flames and people like had to jump out of windows and all kinds of stuff. Uh, they still got the shot incredibly and it is amazing. It, you're like, well, that is a real fire. And yeah, it's because it was a real and very much uncontrolled fire. They're similar in um, Days of Heaven, which again are just examples of like, the power of nature. You've got the iconic scene with the locusts where you've just got this plague of locusts dropping down on the workers in the fields with this great austere house in the background. And that was shot by putting the camera in reverse, getting the actors to rehearse their their movements so that they would perform in reverse and dropping peanut shells from a helicopter so that instead of falling to the ground, they would look like they were rising up from the ground like locusts. That's how that particular effect was shot. And it's one of just the most amazing looking sequences in all of American movies. Not only that, but the close up of the locusts just ravaging mm-hmm. the the crops. I mean, that that was what stood out to me most beyond the uh, uh, beyond the magic hour that I was talking about about the visual nature of this film because it just creeped me out so much because I had never imagined what a locust looked like. Uh, ruining somebody's life work so just incredible work i love that peanut story uh that's i mean before there was cgi and digitally created things people had to get creative the thing is they were already at a point where the sensible way to do that would be with visual effects and visual effects could have done that but at that time to get a vfx shot into a movie you would have to do you'd have to do a really kind of you'd almost have to have a fake shot that would feed into it that would be pretty boring and for anyone who knew you'd be able to go oh we're transitioning to a vfx shot you couldn't do a normal transition with film at that point with a vfx shot and malik hated this so much and the idea of this being in the movie so much and nestor almendros hated it that they came up and I think Almendros is credited with, oh, we'll we'll shoot in reverse and we'll drop peanut shells. And it worked. So that was a great call. Beyond, I mean, you've you've got so many things that I just really like. I love, I'm not an art person, right? This is not something that I'm going to talk about very often, but I love Edward Hopper. There's something about Edward Hopper's paintings that I really, really love. Um, the house is almost an exact replica. Jack Fisk built it to be almost an exact replica of House by the Railroad, the Edward Hopper painting, which is famously also what the Bates Motel in Psycho was modeled on. So the house in Days of Heaven looks almost identical to the Bates Motel in Psycho. I mean, just in terms, uh, this is, I'm sorry for people who aren't into this stuff, but we're going to have to talk a little bit more about cinematography here because it really is the most essential kind of element i think two days of heaven so you mentioned magic hour so this film is 
is shot in light that you just don't see in movies very often. I don't know if that was your experience, particularly coming into this for the first time. It just looks different. And the reason for that is they avoided the fusion. So there was no real thought or consideration given to any sense of we need to evenly manage and distribute light. We need to avoid harsh shadows. And the result is you get these great kind of juxtapositions throughout where sometimes um, you can have really nice, softly lit faces. Other times you can have harsh shadows. Um, the opening sequence in, it's like a steelworks, isn't it? Where Richard Gere works in Chicago, where there's the accident and he essentially kills his boss. They go on the run. Like that is amazing to look at. Like it's so kind of, I don't know, avant-garde. It's it's very unlike how anything any scene of that kind would have been shot at the time as well and it feeds in you've got a lot of these kind of fading red and orange kind of light sources that feed into that and kind of mirror what will become the magic era natural light later in the film so you'd very little um diffusion almost working entirely with natural light interiors being the only exception for that but interiors being lit for natural light um, rather than individually lighting each each shot and each um, actor for those scenes. There's something in here that I don't know if you have noticed, because you usually notice these things. Now, it's not exactly what you usually call out, but it informs what becomes a staple of Malick's filmography, and at this point was still very unconventional and bold. Wouldn't have been all that common in American cinema, but had become the domain of the French New Wave and a lot of European cinema, and that is handheld shots, and in particular, Steadicam. So this is just before the point that Steadicam, um, the branded property Steadicam, which just came to be the dominant camera mobilization piece of equipment throughout the industry, came to the fore. We talked a lot about that when we talked about Blowout, and that being one of the early adoptions of it. This was using Panavision's equivalent system to Steadicam, which was called Panaglide. And I think this is, I don't, I'm not entirely sure on the timing. This came out the same year as Halloween, which also used Panaglide, um, which then De Palma satirized in the opening to blow out by using Steadicam. I don't know which came first. I'm guessing Halloween came out Halloween, so odds are this might have been released first. These are two of the earliest and most notable uses of this kind of stabilization. And particularly later in the film, um, as characters are wading through water, you get lots of shots that at the time were just you know impossible, where you're like, you can't set down a track, you can't run a dolly. How are you going to get that shot otherwise? But the camera is working its way around. It's following Richard Gere that was all quite revolutionary and began to inform a style that just became kind of the standard for Malick's movies as it went along. So the other advantage of going more handheld and going to the Panaglide system is there was an increased element of flexibility, which was needed. So when you were watching this or just after you were asking, you're like, how did they make this? where it's almost exclusively at Magic Air. Like, how do you possibly do that? So in the the heat of the day, in the middle of the day, where on most you know productions, you're probably like, oh, this is our good shooting time. They just would not shoot at all. So that time was used for rehearsal and for setup. 
So it's pinpointing, and I think Haskell Lexler described it as, you know, they would literally put stakes in the ground of this is the point we think will be the best place to shoot at. Once we see the light get right here, this is where we'll be. Malik would run through the scenes with his actors. They would rehearse it so that when you've got very limited time to work with, it was just like everyone run to that spot, cameras roll, get what we need to get. And where Magic Air is usually 15 to 20 minutes in most places on a good, sunny, clear day. And because of how north they were, they supposedly had about 40 minutes a day. So the vast majority of what they did would come in those 40 minutes. But often it would they'd go beyond that. Like I, I saw John Bailey was talking about there's lots of nighttime shots, if you notice, that are like blue, like completely blue. And this would go from they're just stealing shots and trying to get interesting light. So they were taking like filters out from the camera that were designed to create a white balance. And by taking them out, the shot looks more blue. And say if it's Almendras or whoever it may be, you're like, I'm not sure this is worth it. And Malik was like, yeah, well, let's, it might look great. Let's just shoot it and see what happens. As probably like some producer was literally tearing their hair out in the background at the cost of all the film he was shooting and how far over schedule, over budget they were at that point. Um, but it ended up being a pretty spectacular film. I mean, there's some other stuff too. Like you actually sent me a screenshot of it um the kind of caravan arriving at the ranch you've got this unbelievable crane shot where it's just kind of slowly lifting and lifting revealing kind of the vast expanse and you're getting the vehicles kind of making their way through it um john bailey was the camera operator on the crane for that he shot that and he talked about like as it doesn't happen very often. You just, you're in the moment, you don't realize it, but knowing shooting that, like that, this is really special. And his retelling of that is when he came down off the crane, he was covered head to toe in like really extreme goosebumps. And Nestor Almendras was like, are you cold? Like what's, it's the middle day. He's like, no, no, it was just, yeah, I know how special that shot was. And it is, it's kind of just truly inspiring. There's also like the railway bridges where, from a great distance you're getting the train moving along just unbelievable to really kind of push the you know the shots talk here um just truly truly iconic images yes and it led to me sending you that screenshot and saying i think this is a technical term that scene is particularly majestic so you know when that can when it can pull that response it shows you've got the eye though you picked the scene that the camera operator himself was like you know i'm not going to get many moments like this throughout my career yeah so he gave himself goosebumps he gave us goosebumps he he really knocked it out of the park with that one so kudos to him yeah it's it's just such a visually striking film and you can't come away from it with any other interpretation uh i did just learn that linda mans was uh, uh, passed away at the end of t- uh, 2020 mm-hmm. so that's sad also i didn't realize uh she was in one of the more infamous films released in the last 30 years or so uh so i you know i'm, I'm learning a lot about uh which film gummo oh okay i haven't seen it but i've heard things you've heard about it. um but anyway uh <laughs> taste of heaven sounds like a, mu- a much better and rewarding watch than gummo but uh yeah, uh, I don't know if you mentioned it, but uh, I, you probably did, and I was distracted doing my other research. But uh, Ennio Morricone's score 
I, it was next on my list, so you're ahead of the so game. So perfect. Yeah, nominated uh, for Best Original Score at the Academy Awards, and it, it really does. Um, I think it uh, helps heighten the melodrama aspect of it that that uh, you brought up earlier. So yeah, another aspect of it as well, tying together both visual and sound. Um, via that, the... That's another, like, that's an example too. Um, although in this case it is very much grounded in something where like Badlands you're like I just know this music it's there forever in this case well most people probably do it's uh, Carnival of the Animals is really what Morricone did his own spin on Camille Sansan's Carnival of the Animals I believe um, so he was doing his own kind of version of that adapting it slightly but it is a truly iconic a uh, piece of music that people long before Days of Heaven had probably heard and were familiar with, and certainly long past it. But phenomenal score again, and it, that's a common theme in Malik movies, which again I often find with really great directors. They just nail the balance with music at all times. They understand the importance if you're if you're going with score of getting something that's really powerful. And I think just from a filmmaking perspective and a film watching perspective even if you're not noticing the things visually or the score like we are here i think it does something to a viewer's senses when you can just mm, it's the experience yeah and and i think that malik just nails that so well in the the three films we're talking about here but yeah score visually all tied up into into one little bow it really it it I think it can pull something out of you, even if the performances and plot isn't resonating. If if your eyes and ears are being pulled in a certain direction, it can be just as powerful as dialogue or acting. I mean, part of the thing at this point, too, as we're about to transition beyond his break, and I, I guess we might talk a little bit more about the hiatus in the next Malik episode when we talk about Tree of Life, because a lot of the the stuff he tried to get off the ground that time does seem to have informed Tree of Life ultimately. But when you read any of the production stories from Badlands and Days of Heaven, and you look at what Malik made, even at that time, even in the 70s, when studios were just handing over artistic control to these new, young, and often radical artists, Malik didn't really fit into that not just in terms of the kind of subject matter he wanted to explore like i mean one thing with this film this is pretty bold in that it's it's a traditional american period piece and it was bringing in filming techniques that had just never been applied to that before that seems like a pretty safe bet like where okay the uh hollywood movie going kind of audience had started to become accustomed to you know handheld cameras and different editing styles and other features of say the french new wave by the time the mid 70s came along and as the american new wave was really kind of starting to emerge they wouldn't have seen many period pieces shot with handheld cameras or any anything like the panaglide so that's that's something that's kind of interesting there too but with all of that and with you know this film in particular is a testament to if a director has a strong vision but also empowers other great artists and craftspeople and is like we're just going to make the very best movie we can make here of what the results can be but that just doesn't work within the studio system 
you just can't you can't be like oh yeah well you know the cinematographer and i maybe some days we won't shoot a whole lot we'll wait and see if the light's just right um we'll change up everything along the way as we go kind of in terms of what our shooting schedule looks like to suit that we'll probably come in way over time way over budget it's just not it doesn't work in the studio system so even at the time when there was more freedom for kind of bold distinct visual artists in american movie making malik's own preoccupations interests weren't necessarily kind of conducive to him working within that which is part of what happens here i mean days of heaven was another film that it didn't bomb but it failed commercially it barely barely made profit box office wise and probably take any kind of marketing costs out of that it wouldn't have it didn't do much of anything but it it won these like really great champions i think was it was it the studio head of paramount i read basically gave malik like here's a blank you know here's a million dollars for your next project i don't care what it is i love this movie so much it's such an achievement here's a million right now and we can kind of talk further and go from there and malik was like yeah cool i'm gonna develop this project about the creation of the universe um <laughs> which it had made its way out into the world eventually but there is there's a lot there I it's it is interesting there's so much of like malik's lost years that are just again the man doesn't speak we don't know they're lost to legend there are these kind of small details out there where there's a suggestion that he started to live at least it's his own suggestion true friends a more hedonistic lifestyle and you can't imagine terence malik the the poet the philosopher the director of these films kind of falling into that maybe he did um there were some screenplays i know he wrote that other people were to direct a couple of plays i don't think much of anything came to fruition he moved to paris i believe for like five or six years and just kind of completely disappeared off the grid where no one from hollywood could get in touch like <laughs> again the most interesting man in the world you ready for the tin red line i am this is the film it seemed like i I know you said badlands blew you away most that might be relative to expectations of what it was going to be but you had seen this before but many years ago probably at an age where it was over your head is that right in saying that and then this this hit you in a very different way yeah, I probably saw it at like 11, 12, 13, something like that after having seen Saving Private Ryan going on like a, a war movie binge or, or whatever as you do as a as a teenager. Um, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it blew me away. I think it's the best war movie ever made now. I really do. I think it, yeah, it, it, it knocked me out. I think it, it pulls together his fascination with nature as I noted, and tells a story about how brutal human beings can be to one another um, in, in the most beautiful settings. I mean, this is the Thin Red Line is is based on, I guess, uh, a book from from the 1960s of the same name, and it's about the the U.S. Army going into the South Pacific at Guadalcanal and trying to kind of. Uh, overtake an area that was controlled uh, by the, um, Japan at that point. And I think just the contrast of the brutal violence and, and the death 
set against uh, this part of the world that was so untouched. And we get the balance of Jim Caviezel's character living with uh, some of the people that were native to that area in a in a place that's untouched by the violence until they get there. And I, I just think when you tie that all together, it's a look at war that I don't think uh, modern content creation around like World War II or like a Band of Brothers or Saving Private Ryan, I think they always try and tie things together in like a brotherhood and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, valor and we're taking back, uh, you know, we're whatever whatever war looks like. And Excuse my ignorance. Was it Memorial Day yesterday? It, it was. So like things right. like that. Oh. So like American flags, patriotism, we're doing this for our country and for brotherhood and, and you know, we're a band of brothers. There's... There is no doubt that vision was crafted by Hollywood and fueled by Hollywood. Like that goes back to directors like John uh, John Ford. Um, like throughout throughout the, the World War Two, there were war films made specifically that you know were romanticizing some elements. Um, the communal, as you mentioned, the brotherhood, the I guess kind of selfless love for the country that have become staples in the idea of, you know, what the American military represents. And that's not to say that these that these other films don't show some element of the brutality, but it's always contrasted with like that the valor and the and and that sort of thing. Whereas I think the thin red line takes takes the piss <laughs> completely out of that aspect of it. And you're left with just what and, you know, I've never been to war, so I can't speak exactly accurately but it's the most honest portrayal of of war that exists and the fear and the the death is way beyond any sort of sense of duty and and camaraderie it's it's mainly just let's stay alive and it, i don't know i just found it very harrowing in, in a in a different way than than a saving private ryan or things like that i think most contemporary and when i say contemporary really means post vietnam like a lot of these movies are, are more about vietnam than they are about um world war one or world war two even if that is their setting most contemporary war films if they really are searching for something it's they want to they want to make clear for the audience they want to capture on camera the horrors of war and explore the impact the horrors of war have on the individual. Which is fair, you know? I've also never been to war, so I don't know. But, I mean, I can understand the impulse, if you're going to make a war movie, to make a war movie in that mold. I think The Tin Red Line is much, much more interesting than most of those films. Because... Malik is not interested in the horrors of war as much as he's interested in the absurdity of war. And it, this just comes down to his personal beliefs, his philosophy, his interest in philosophy, which I think to make a horrors of war movie, you're putting the humans at the center of your story, but you're also then possibly putting nationalities at the center of your story in a different way 
like I mean it's it's not like we don't have the Americans and the Japanese in the tin red line but I don't think they're necessarily cast in the way that it can often happen in a war movie because in Malik's world they're all the same and they're all just encroaching on nature you know and they're all oblivious to the fact that they're so insignificant in the grand scheme of things you know what is everyone fighting over what is the point of all of this and i i remember i am i'm like an amateur malik scholar i've i've written some uh some papers on malik way back in the day and one of the things that stands out in my memory from this was a john turturro quote about this film where he saw this as this kind of perfect encapsulation of Malik's view and relationship to nature, because this is a film about groups of humans, groups of men who were literally fighting over trying to capture hills, capture a position where in Malik's world, it's like, you can't capture a hill, you know, <laughs> this hill was here before you, this hill will be here after you. And that is, that is so much of the movie. And uh, Wit, played by Jim Caviezel, is the audience's kind of window into that world as someone who, like, is so clearly cognizant of and open to the beauty around him. He's at war, but he can see the beauty around him in the simple things of the the landscapes and the nature of the Solomon Islands to the people who are living there and all of a sudden kind of find themselves caught up in this war that, I mean, different conversation, but some like true absurdities of war is you've got a place like the Solomon Islands, which is just essentially out there in the middle of the ocean, minding its own business. And all of a sudden you've got the U S and Japan fighting each other um, on your territory. It's, it's wild just as a kind of abstract concept. It's really something pretty hard to wrap your head around. But in this film, I mean, everyone is caught up in something, you know, that's the soldiers are all just part of the bigger machine. That's the American war effort. But I think Malik's point is, you know, all of this is just representative of how humans are just part of the machine that is, you know, nature, which is the, the natural universe and this existence that kind of goes far beyond us. And it's it's interesting too because I don't think we've talked about. I mean, maybe this is the point where it would come in, and we'll come up more when we get to stuff like Tree of Life. Ideas of fate and religion come up quite often in Malik's work, although I transcendence would be the way I'd tend to personally phrase it and frame it, and think that speaks pretty closely to what it what it feels like. I can't. I can't. No one can say what Malik intends to do because he won't tell anyone. But to what it feels like, he's often kind of looking to capture on screen. I mean, the thing that for me, from the first viewing of this, and it's the first time you watch it, it's the very first thing you hear. The movie opens, I think there's like a crocodile in the water. Um, then it goes to like a shot of the foliage above, like a canopy of trees with light streaming through then it kind of cuts to really distinct and kind of weird looking trees, at least for me, maybe they're very common in the Solomon Islands, but again, just kind of natural beauty. And then it cuts to 
two really young children playing wearing kind of primitive dress i would guess kind of native dress to the islanders and the voiceover i can't remember who the voiceover obviously shifts throughout this movie um from character to character which does make it a little different to his two previous films the perspective changes but the line and the line that sticks at me is what is this war in the heart of nature like that's how the tin red line opens and that is the movie and in a lot of ways that is malik's entire filmography the war may not always literally be a war like this but it could be the internal struggle or the kind of smaller scale interpersonal struggles that that mark out people's lives that are central to malik's movies and it is how they kind of come into conflict with the natural world which really drives his movies yeah something uh you reminded me of in in the middle of all that was the absurdity of of war i mean this this world existed long before us these these trees that we ha- haven't been well, cut down if, if we're lucky very lucky uh it might exist long after us. right but that's up for debate the trees the grass these generations of animals the little the i don't know what kind of bats they were the bats hanging from the trees the river running the the current all that exists before us we infringe on this place to shoot guns at one another because we can't agree on political issues and it's a thing that has happened since the dawn of humans in primitive ways and now in more advanced ways and set against this backdrop it really does just highlight how insane the entire notion of war is I don't agree with you. We should kill each other instead of talking this out. And it just <laughs> just goes back to the degrees in humanity of who's evil, who's right and wrong, and we're really not all that different from one another. One of the scenes that is one of the most horrifying for me, but also does a great job of of highlighting the absurdity of everything, is there's a point where, spoiler alert, sorry folks, this movie's been out for 20 years. Um, uh, Woody Harrelson's character pulls a grenade pin by mistake and essentially blows his lower half off and bleeds out and him just moaning about how he's never going to be able to have sex again because of what he did and just like the stupidity that it took to pull that pin out because we saw him fucking with it earlier so something he did led to this catastrophic accident and now he's sitting there dying in the middle of the Solomon Islands. Like, is there anything more absurd than that? You're dead because you're fighting in this stupid war and you pulled a grenade pin. You weren't shot by an enemy combatant. And that's that. And like, so tying together, like you said, the horrors of war and setting it against a scene where there's like, it's horrifying, but the way he's talking is like Woody Harrelson kind of comedic tones. And it's just like, you just feel so cringy at, at the entire time. And I think that's pretty effective. So, uh, yeah, just, uh, yeah, a much more interesting war movie than we've ever seen before. It's not like, let's rally to go get Matt Damon and off of, uh, wherever the fuck he is. It's, uh, yeah, it's just like warts and all would be the best description of, of how he chooses to tell this story. I mean, uh, 
another aspect of the film that I think highlights the absurdity of war is the 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 lieutenant or sergeant or whatever he is that is strategizing in a way where they can take the hill but also save lives. That's why- my favorite part of the movie is the Nick Nolte, Elias Cateus uh, phone call. Is that a phone? Yeah. Uh, so, it acts like a phone, yeah, whatever it is. I don't know if it was a phone in World War Two in the middle. But yeah, where they're, they are discussing that and Nick Nolte just wants, you know, just go, you know, go take the bunker. And Elias Cateus is like, you haven't seen what we've seen. If we go there and we do this, this is what's going to happen. And he basically defies his orders. But that... That ultimately, I mean, one, we do get to see a version of um, them actually take the bunker play out. Um, but we also get to see the conversation play out again, kind of after the fact that this, you know, you know, who decides, you know, what one life or what two lives or, you know, this idea, which again, just points to the absurdity of war. I love all of that. though. The tension, I think it just this is something different that we haven't talked about. And even on a rewatch and a first rewatch and some time for me for this movie, I was struck by just how well Malik manages and generates tension in a lot of those scenes. Like you really feel it. You really, really feel it. And in a way that's kind of so much more organic and the stakes, I'm not saying the stakes are smaller, but the setup isn't maybe as loud as it would be in another movie. Yet you still manage to get that tension. And then when action does actually play out, I think it's really, really well directed. It's like, again, there's a different version of Malik. He could do whatever he wants, but it's not what you're necessarily going to come into this movie expecting. But I do think when when it gets closer to being, you know, what you imagine a war film as being, I think it's really, really well made as well. Like it works on those multiple levels. Uh, one of the things that I think is really effective about what he's done here and also le- led to some of the more controversial lore around the film is just the depth of the cast and just how we spend a little bit of time with each character. And I think it it does a a great job to highlight the realities of war, the absurdities of war, as we kept mentioning, because we get to see so many different reactions to the situation. We get the people that are... Nick, Nick Nolte, who's push on into the into the breach and, you know, come out on the other side, no matter what it costs. We have uh, Staros, who's more methodical and he's thinking about how how can we do this and also, you know, spare some lives. And, and then we get to see the the privates who some are want to do something heroic. Some are scared shitless and some some of the leaders are scared, but they're faking like they're not scared. It's just like it, it covers a. Uh, a whole lot of ground in terms of different people and then gives you the ability to see members of war as actual human beings. One of the things that we've been talking about in popular uh, culture right now is how people returning to arenas don't see athletes as, <laughs> as uh, human beings and they're throwing popcorn and water bottles at them. Why can't you just boo and yell people? That's a different, that's a, <laughs> that's a different story aside, but I think, Especially in 2021, we don't often view soldiers as human beings. They're political props for things like yesterday where uh, people post pictures of Pat Tillman without truly understanding his story, what he believed in and what his family believes in. And they're also just uh, 
things on a screen that entertain us. I mean, the rise of first person shooters and like Call of Duty and that sort of thing. So I think that's taken away the humanity of people that were sent overseas to be political pawns in a, a game between leaders of countries. And I think covering a lot of ground and spending a lot of time with Adrian Brody, Jim Caviezel, uh, Woody Harrelson, Sean Penn, and just jumping from place to place does a good job of, of really humanizing these people and understanding that when someone makes a strategic decision to send a bunch of people to take a hill, that loss of life is the death of a human being who was was a person beyond what he was doing in that field who had a life back home. And uh, I think just the the wide variety of interactions and characters we get does a great job to highlight that. I agree. You mentioned Adrian Brody there, which it's it's probably a good segue for one of the reasons that a lot of people may know of this film, even though if they haven't seen it. This is a film that's famous for lots of people you may have heard of were in it, but oh no, they weren't. They were cut completely. And this is now a Malik staple. <laughs> this is the the first instance of it. This is where he has that 20-year gap. And I guess he decides my movies are going to be made completely in the edit now. Uh, we're going to shoot lots and lots of film. We're going to shoot all of these different characters. Some of them may not even be part of the story when all is said and done. I mean, the stories from the Tin Red Line are infamous. Adrian Brody supposedly went to the, the premiere thinking he was the lead in the film only to find out he was not the lead in the film. The lead was, in fact, Jim Caviezel. And there were a number of scenes, extensive scenes, that um, Adrian Brody is said to have felt very, very strongly, very proud of some of his best work. He was thinking, this is the film that's going to launch me into a different stratosphere as an actor. And he went to the premiere. He hadn't been told anything otherwise. And he looked up on screen and... I mean, he's still significant. Um, he should really count himself lucky considering what happens to some others, but he was more of a supporting character. To the utter extreme of that, Bill Pullman, Lucas Haas, and Mickey Rourke were all cut completely. Billy Bob Thornton recorded voiceover, which was scrapped. And uh, Martin Sheen and Viggo Mortensen were in the mix for this and participated in retrues, but didn't ultimately um, go to appear in the film or be in the shoot. And you also, I mean, there's people who I think have taken it in a more gracious way. And one at the time were just like, oh, Malik's making a new movie. I want to be in that, which is what happened. And it's how the cast is what it is. I never particularly found it jarring. I probably knew some of the backstory on my first viewing. But there is something just funny about, oh, there's George Clooney and oh, George Clooney's gone. Like, or, oh, you know, very close to the end where you're like, is that John Travolta for like 30 seconds? You know, there's just so much of that throughout the movie. But I, I honestly think like if you can separate yourself, if you aren't Adrian Brody thinking you've been robbed of the defining moment of your career, I think it's a real testament to Malik and how much his sole goal is, yeah, I want to make the best movie I can make and the movie that kind of speaks to what I want to make it about. I don't, these are just people. I don't care about whose face is there. They got paid for their work if they did their work. Like, I mean, and I think it works. Like, this is a masterpiece. It's a really special movie. 
but it we couldn't talk about the Tin Red Line without mentioning that because as we move into future episodes, um, we are absolutely going to have to talk about a lot of like, oh, this person shot some stuff and then just wasn't in that movie at all because it, it starts to happen quite a lot from this point on. To Malik's credit as well, I think one thing that I found in my film watching is I'm an Adrian Brody in small doses type of guy. Uh, Adrian Brody in uh, like maybe so small that you're turning thinking what do i actually like i think i like him in the grand budapest hotel Um, yes he's amazing he's great in that uh he had a character arc on peaky blinders that might be some of the worst acting i've ever seen in my entire life did not know he's in that uh you'll never see that performance so you don't have to worry about it um but yeah uh just the uh the (laughs) he he's what i want adam from my soccer managers uh, I need the ruthlessness to do a squad refresh if necessary. Oh, you want you want Malik to manage Liverpool? Yeah, exactly. I I listen when players get in their thirties, we need to we need to loan them out to Southampton or sell them to they can go play in Italy or something. I don't know. I I admire Malik's ability to be a ruthless squad manager because I don't know if I'm built for that. So I hate disappointing people. I I would have. I'd have been like, mm, I don't know if Adrian's bringing it in this scene. I think we, I think I'm finding, I'm finding in the room that this is really, I want Caviezel going on this journey more than more than Brody. <laughs> um, and then there, there it goes. It's unfortunate Jim Caviezel has turned into what he is, but nevertheless, good performance in this movie. A lot of very good performances throughout his career as well. Kind of really interesting actor, just actor. Um, but interesting actor if you're to kind of look at some of the movies he's made over the years. Um, I think the the last thing I'll say on this, and it kind of needs to be talked about briefly, just because of I think our next episode is going to be um, not our next episode of the podcast, our next episode of our Malik series is going to be like our spiritual Malik um, movie pod. It's going to be the one where he's really exploring, you know what all of this is about and you know the essence of life and nature and humanity this is the film where you could see malik the philosopher and you could see malik the guy who translated heidegger um really bring that to the fore and make movies that are like so deeply entrenched with these philosophical ideas so without getting heavy into heideggerian philosophy one of the key ideas that heidegger had was this idea of the poet and the poet being someone who i guess could make sense of the world and had the ability to translate what they saw around them and put it in a new context that would speak to a wider audience so someone who's responsible for you know capturing the ineffable or the metaphysical and being able to shine it in a new light that others could then come along and engage with it and kind of fully grapple with whatever this idea is that in many senses is just too big for any one person to cope with. And to me, very clearly, this is, this is Malik fulfilling, you know, the role of Heidegger's poet. This is where that kind of view of subject matter, things that interest them in reaching for the, Oh, we're going to make a war movie but I want to make a war movie that's exploring, you know, the absurdity of war and the hold of nature around us and the struggles that humans will fight out over. 
all of that is working towards something that is much, much bigger and more complex and um, grander ideas than necessarily, you know, someone who's going to go and buy their their movie ticket and a bucket of popcorn and like a massive bucket of Coke. And they're going to go to see a war movie in 1998. It's, it's not what they're going to be prepared for. I don't know if those people would necessarily like hate this movie. I don't think it's to a point where it's so far removed from anything they might expect, but it is capturing all of what they know about a war movie with a lot that would generally just not factor into what you'd think of when it comes to a war movie, bring it together and kind of pushing it into a more, um, a more coherent, larger, larger idea about, civilization humanity and what it is we're doing um mostly to each other and the impact that has on the world around us so that's kind of a transition that i think malik's movies really begin to make from this point and not in our next episode the episode after that we will pick up with part two of our malik series and on that occasion um we'll pick up in the filmography but we will make one jump so we will We'll actually, we'll make a couple of jumps. Next time for Malik, we'll talk about the new world, the tree of life, voyage of time, and a hidden life. They will be our four movies. Um, may We may do some stuff on bow cuts of tree of life. I'm not going to force that on Andrew, but I may watch bow cuts again in preparation because there is some different stuff in there and we may just kind of touch on that somewhat but that will be the next episode of malik and then we'll wrap up with um what might be the really fun one to talk about which is to the wonder and night of cups and song to song the malik movies that may have informed people's opinions that may have led to andrew's you know preconceived notions of malik being what they were before we did this episode any final thoughts on Malik's first three movies, this introductory kind of journey for you. It's a pretty unimpeachable trio of films. The surprising thing is that uh, the two and three come 20 years apart, and we talked a little bit about why. Um, yeah, I think it's it's as good a three-movie run as any director has in their filmography. And as we jump around... We're going to get some great, we're going to get some good, and we're going to get some, we'll see how it lands with Andrew in the future. But We will, but I'll I'll tip my hat. I'll be curious to see what you think, but Malik doesn't miss for a while yet. Like, Malik goes on a five-movie run, which is better than any director has ever had. And then maybe, you know, hot off the fumes of that, he really just says, I'm going to do whatever I want now. And what he wants may not be what anyone else wants. But I'm I'm excited to hear your thoughts on The New World, which to me is another spectacular film. One of the best movies of the 2000s. And then we'll get The Tree of Life as well. But Malik's first five movies are just remarkable that someone made those five films, regardless of how people like or dislike different elements. Those are your first five movies. There's something very interesting. So the tree is you're spot on with that, but I, I think it goes to five, and then he takes a detour, which you know what? Maybe you'll love. Maybe you're gonna be like 
song to song, that's my favorite Malik. I'm not seeing it as completely impossible. I mean, the subject matters would be on brand for that. We'll see what happens. That's the journey I'm most excited for. Okay, so we will be doing that soon enough. It will probably be a couple of weeks um, for the next Malik episode. In the meantime, we are going to talk about another filmmaker, and another filmmaker I really, really like. There'll actually there'll be a bit of um, preparation for Andrew getting to know one face in particular that will factor into the next Malik episode. We're going to talk about the films of German director Christian Petzold. In particular, may not be exclusively these. I might add some details about others, but as Andrew's prescribed homework, and for anyone who wants to kind of make sure they have the key stuff covered, um, we're going to talk about Yella. Barbara, Phoenix, Transit, and the recently released Undina. These are almost all available on Mubi at the moment. If you're looking for a way to watch these, Mubi are doing a Christian Petzold season, which is why this is an episode I wanted to at some point, but I felt like, oh, it's a good time to bring it forward because not necessarily the most available of filmographies at all times. Um, but between Mubi and, say, Criterion Channel, you could get all of these, I think, on streaming right now, plus stuff like The State I'm In and Jericho as well. So Christian Petzold is one of the most interesting and innovative working filmmakers in world cinema today. So if you've never heard of him, never seen any of his movies, um, never been left just you know, awestruck by his incredible endings, I highly, highly recommend checking out some of Christian Petzold's movies, and that will be our next episode. Are you excited, Andrew? This is I don't I didn't really prepare you for this in much of any way, so I know this is gonna be a going in blind kind of experience. I feel like those are the best experiences for this podcast, as we're seeing. Where maybe I've come up with my own determination about what I think I'm gonna go through and then it uh, you know, it surprises me. Well, I look forward to it surprising. Let's hope it's a good surprise. Until next time, thanks to all of you for listening. You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on Twitter at Captured on Cell. Any thoughts or feedback, you can send them there. Also, feel free to go and leave us a, a nice rating and review on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks again for listening. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Adam.